July 9th, 2011, was a special day for me. That day is special because it was the day that I married Emily, who at that time was known as Emily Bell. See, a little over four years ago, Emily Bell took my last name and became my wife, Emily Tyler. Emily changed in a very important way that day. She went from being known as Emily Bell, a name that she had had for 21 years of her life, to Emily Tyler. What's it like to inherit a new name? Many of you in this room know what it's like because you received a new last name on your wedding day. Maybe some of you, for whatever reason, you didn't like your given last name, and so you're happy, you're thankful that it was changed. Maybe your given last name was hard to pronounce. Maybe it was weird, and you like your new last name a lot better. Well, Emily, she had a perfectly fine last name before we were married. You know, Belle, who, that's a beautiful last name, right? I mean, who doesn't like the sound of bells ringing in, in the wind, you know, or, or who doesn't think of the, you know, one of the most famous Disney princesses of all time, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Of course, on the other hand, my last name is kind of boring. Tyler, right? I mean, it's not even a last name. It's a first name that for whatever reason has been turned into a last name. Plus, you know, I looked up the meaning of my last name. You know what it means? It comes from the Middle Ages, Tyler. It comes from the Middle Ages, meaning maker of tiles. So Emily went from being Emily Bell, the namesake of a Disney princess, to Emily Tyler, a family that makes tiles. Soon after we were married, I asked Emily what it was like to just have her name changed like that, to take my last name. And she told me that it was a privilege. She said it was a joy because it meant that she was mine and that I was hers. Taking my last name demonstrates to the world our unity and our commitment to one another. And she said that she loves being called Emily Tyler. And I must admit that I love hearing people call her Emily Tyler. I love seeing her write Emily Tyler on documents or checks or or whatever it is because it's an honor and it's a privilege to me to see her being called Emily Tyler. She's my wife. I suspect that many of you, many of us in this room, that's probably pretty normal. Many of us are, are proud of our names. We're proud of our family names. We're proud of what our names represent. Of course, on the other hand, sometimes there are things that happen that bring dishonor to our names, bring dishonor to our family. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning carries with it these kind of connotations. Name is wrapped up in praise and honor People want to be remembered. They want their names to be remembered. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 
11, verses 1 through 9. And before I read it, I want to give a little bit of background context. Some of you are aware that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is the great prologue to the Bible. It sets up the story of God's redemption that the rest of the Bible is going to flesh out. On these first 11 chapters of the Bible, the author weaves the story of creation and the subsequent fall of man together and begins to paint a picture of the far-reaching effects of sin. God created the world. He created everything in it. He created us to be His image bearers. He wanted us to walk with Him and have fellowship with Him. And of course, we know that Adam and Eve did just that. They walked with them. They had this great fellowship. And He gave them commands. He told them to be fruitful and multiply and tells them they can eat from any tree that they want except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But unfortunately, Adam and Eve disobey the Creator God and the whole world is cursed as a result. And in Genesis 3, when Adam sins, it quickly becomes apparent that God, even in spite of man's sin, has a plan to reverse the curse that the sin brought into the world. He has a plan to reverse this curse and bring great glory to himself. So he curses the serpent, who we know is Satan, who tempts Eve to take the forbidden fruit. And as a result, he's cursed. He promises, God promises to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. And then in Genesis 3.15, God gives us the wonderful promise that he'll bruise, there's a, the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Now this promise, the promise that Satan's head will be crushed, it's the, the first place in Scripture where God begins to reveal his plan to send a Savior into the world to take away the sins of mankind and redeem the world. The offspring of the woman, that is Jesus, will crush the serpent's head. He will do this by suffering and dying on a cross, which is alluded to in God's statement that the serpent will bruise Jesus' heel. But the serpent's not act, actually and ultimately going to win. He's going to be crushed. Jesus will rise from the dead again. So what does all of this tell us? We learn very early on in Scripture that there are two kingdoms in this world. There's two kingdoms, and they are opposed to each other. There's what we might call the kingdom of this world, composed of all those who are disobedient to the commands of God and those who stand in opposition to Him. Then there's the kingdom of heaven, composed of all those who trust in the promised one of God and obey his commands. We learn as scripture unfolds that Jesus is the one who comes proclaiming this kingdom of heaven and God reveals that he is the beloved son who will take away sins. Now lest we too quickly identify with the kingdom of heaven without first identifying our examining ourselves, it's important to remember that all humans are born into the kingdom of this world. If Genesis 1 through 11 tells us anything, it's that the tentacles of evil had all of humankind in its grasp, including us when we came into the world. Nobody is able to resist the allure of sin. And sometimes that sin shows up as murder, as it did with Cain, who killed his brother. But you know, before that, it showed up as anger 
and hatred and jealousy, sins that all of us in this room struggle with. Yet Genesis 1 through 11 also gives us glimpses of God graciously saving people and transferring them into his kingdom of heaven. You have Abel who demonstrates his faith by bringing God an acceptable sacrifice. Or you see Noah and his family who God spares from the great flood. These are people who are of the kingdom of heaven. God mercifully spares them. Now once the great flood is over, God commands Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and to multiply and fill and subdue the earth. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's desire and God's plan in this world is that his glory will spread out as his people spread across the land. That brings us to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. I'll read it for us. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city. And the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the language of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. If there's a main point that we can get from this passage, if there's anything that you might want to write down, it's, it's this. I think this passage is telling us that Those who seek praise and a misplaced security for themselves are against God. Don't do that. Instead, rest in Christ and make his name famous. That's what I think is the main point of this passage. Those who seek praise and a misplaced security for themselves are against God. Don't do that. Instead, Rest in Christ and make his name famous. I want to break the sermon into two parts this morning. First, I want to spend some time studying Genesis 11 to see an example of a people who are against God and are are therefore a part of the kingdom of this world. I want us to see this morning from this passage that a desire for praise and security for oneself characterizes those who are part of the kingdom of this world. And I hope that it will be a warning to us to flee from such sin. And then second, I want to offer us a glimpse of how those within God's kingdom should respond when we're confronted with pride and self-exaltation in our own 
lives. And ultimately, I want us to understand that our greatest purpose in this life is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. So first, Genesis 11 is an example of those within the kingdom of this world. The key statements in this passage come in verse 4, and you can see them there. First, they aim to build a city. Second, they aim to build a tower in this city with its tops in the heavens. They aim to make a name for themselves. They aim not to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, those latter two statements, those latter two things there, they correspond to the first two. Building a city ensures that they're not dispersed over the earth. And building a tower that reaches into the heavens ensures that they make a name for themselves. So as one commentator points out, the city and the tower are outward expressions of inward sins within their hearts. The inward or heart sins in this passage are the sin of loving and desiring a misplaced security. So they build a city to prevent their dispersal. And the risk of pride... So they build a tower to make a name for themselves. They desire to be praised and to make their names known. Now, building a tower certainly isn't a bad way of gaining recognition, is it? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Emily and I, the last few years, have visited three major cities. We visited Chicago, we visited New York City, and we visited this Uh, major city in East Asia that we're about to move to. And in each of those cities, we have gone to the top of the tallest building in those cities. So the city that we're about to move to, there's uh, this massive, this gigantic tower, and you can go up a hundred stories, you know, to the top. And you can walk out uh, onto the floor, and it's all glass. You know, so you're walking out, and you're looking down, and you can just see to the bottom. And guess what? It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying, and yet, every year, thousands of tourists decide to walk across this room and look down and get scared out of their minds. And the city, they take pride in this building, as, as all major cities do in their tallest buildings. So it makes sense that those in our passage would find building a giant tower as a suitable way of drawing attention to themselves. We do this even in our own cultures. So the, the sins that show up in this passage, though, are they're really, just a, they're really just a reiteration of the sins that have been committed all the way through Genesis 1 through 11. And further, they're sins that are repeated in vicious cycles even to this day. And sadly, to our shame, sometimes they're sins that are committed even in our own lives, many times in our own churches. Let me explain. You see, God laid out a clear command and vision for the peoples of the earth right after the great flood. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 7, God tells them that they are to multiply, to spread out across the earth. Because wherever humans go, the image of God goes, and God's glory would thus spread. And yet, the people decide to not do that. They refuse to obey God's command, to 
disobey God by refusing to multiply and by refusing to disperse over the earth was to disregard the commands of the holy creator God. See, the people at Babel decided that they knew better than God what was best for their lives. See, to scatter over the earth, that's a risky endeavor. It involves leaving the comforts of one's family. It involves going into strange and unknown lands where there might not be shelter, there might not be food. You see, the problem for those at Babel was that they did not trust God for His provision. Security, they believed, that's not found in God. Security is found in mankind banding together. Verse 4, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for themselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Those at Babel believed that their security rested in their own unity and great feats, which are accomplished by unifying around this central goal, namely the goal of making a name for themselves and preventing their dispersal. So the people arrogantly defy the command of God. Now this disobedient before God plays out most strikingly in their desire to build a giant tower to make this name for themselves. The motives of the people at Babel were motivations of pride. They craved and they desired the praise of men. Now I wonder if any of us in this room might look at this and say, you know, what's, what's really the big deal here? I mean, they're, they're building a tower They just want to establish their name in history to leave their mark. Why is that that such a big deal? If we're not careful, we may miss the, the grave sin that is portrayed in Genesis 11. You see, these finite creatures, these creatures who are created by the living God of the universe, the one who created the world, These creatures were commanded to spread across the face of the earth so that God's glory would fill the dry land. But instead, they banded together with a single mind to create a tower and make a name for themselves. You know what they wanted? They wanted to proclaim their own glory. They sinfully united to make their own names famous. Brothers and sisters, These people didn't simply have a mind to disobey God's command. They wanted to take his glory. They wanted to take his place. I mean, can you imagine that? The God of this world who creates burning spheres of plasma and hangs them in the sky, that's the God that created them? They think that they can outmatch his creation by building a tower out of stone, out of mortar? Can you imagine that? That is the epitome of arrogant ignorance that can only be made sense of by the fact that sin makes humans dumb. See, these people, they're smart enough to build a tower, but they're dumb enough to think that they can outmatch God's creation, that they can take his place. That's what we see in the story. Arrogant defiance of the one who demands glory. We see humans trying to steal the glory of the one who created them. 
And they do it by trying to build a tower so tall that the tops are in the heavens. And you know what the Lord does? In order to see the tower, the Lord has to come down. He has to come down. Verse 5, the Lord came down. This supposedly tall tower that was going to go into the heavens is mocked by the Lord who has to come down to even see it. You know what I think of when I read Genesis 11? I think of Psalm 2, verse 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What does the Lord do in Genesis 11? The Lord whose purposes are never thwarted and who has determined that His glory will fill the earth judges them for their sin. He punishes them by confusing their languages and scatters them over the face of the earth. Friends, the, ones who, the one who sits in the heavens laughs at this kind of arrogant insolence and his, in his wrath he scatters them over the face of the earth so that his purpose of seeing his glory cover the dry land is not thwarted. I wonder if there's anybody in this room who isn't a Christian. Maybe you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. If that's you, we're glad you're here. I've, this is the first time I've stepped foot in this church, and they've already been so welcoming. I'm sure that they will be to you. But I want you to know that God has created you for His glory. The Bible tells us that our Creator God will judge those who seek to steal His glory, just as He judged those at Babel. Failing to submit to Jesus is to live in defiance of the one who gave you life and who demands glory. It's to live just like the people at Babel. Look at where their disobedience, look at where their disbelief got them. For their sin, their project is never completed. They're in a worse state than they were before. And yet God's purpose of glorifying himself and seeing them dispersed is still fulfilled. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Perhaps you're not building a literal tower, but I wonder if your life is motivated and driven primarily by a desire to make your name great. Friend, I can promise you that that is an exhausting way to live. And it's ultimately going to come to nothing. And you should give it up and trust in Christ. But for those of us in this room who are Christians, how easy it is for us to look at this story and then to sit back in our chairs and fold our arms and nod and say, yes, God showed them. They got what was coming to them. But brothers and sisters, do we not struggle with the same pride that's demonstrated in this passage? Don't we often want our own names to be known? Don't we often live in such a way as to suggest that we care more for our own glory 
than for the glory of God? Isn't it the case that we spend much of our days concerned about what others think about us? You know, maybe we're not building physical towers. But how difficult is it for us to get through a single day without feeling snubbed or ignored or down about ourselves? Do you get discouraged when you aren't noticed? You see, pride comes so naturally to us. Some of us take pride in being richer or more clever than others. We want others to think that we're the best mom or the best dad or we have the best, most well-behaved children. We want our employers to think that we're the best employee they've ever had. You know, Tim Keller says that pride is the pleasure of having more than the next person. Pride is the pleasure of being more than the next person. Of course, others of us in this room, we find ourselves regularly thinking about how we fail to measure up. Maybe we think we're just terrible people and we don't feel like we're good at anything. We're constantly worried that others are going to see that we're actually terrible parents. You know, right after seminary, Steve mentioned this, I had the wonderful opportunity to complete a pastoral internship with five other men. And in the days leading up to this internship, I found myself oscillating between two extremes. You know, sometimes I felt that I would be the best equipped intern this church had ever seen, right? I thought I'd have the best papers. I thought I would, you know, make the best points and have the best insights. But then... The next day came, and I was worried I wouldn't measure up. I mean, what if my papers were terrible? What if the pastors thought that I should have the best insights, but I actually didn't? What if I turned out to be a dud? You know, of course, no matter how I felt, whichever extreme I was on, my problem was the same in both cases. In both cases, I wanted to be known. I wanted to be recognized. During those moments when I was thinking of myself more highly than I should have been, I was resting in the fact that I would stand out above the others. And on the other hand, during those times where I was worried I wouldn't stand out, that I would be inferior, I was worried that I wouldn't be recognized, that my name wouldn't be known. But in both cases, I was motivated by a prideful desire to be thought of highly. That was for a church internship. In other words, I was building a tower to myself. Friends, how easy it would be for us to think that simply because we're Christians, our desires for our name to be great and known aren't actually sinful. That's not the case. Every time we fall into this trap of thinking of ourselves more highly than we should, or on the other hand, thinking less of ourselves than we actually are, we're seeking praise for ourselves. We're acting like those in Genesis 11 who stand against God. We're tower builders. 
as Christians, we must be all the more diligent in weeding out this sin in our life because we are people who believe that we exist in order to exalt the name of Christ and not our own names. And you know, we need to be particularly careful of this kind of thing, this kind of mentality in our churches. Because if there's ever a danger of Christians building towers for themselves, it's in our churches, even in a place as wonderful as Harbin's community. You see, Satan would love nothing more than to take this church where clearly all of you, you love one another. It's evident. Satan would love nothing more than to take that and turn you against each other. I mean, how many churches have been ripped apart because one or several of the members get the idea in their head that simply because their families live there the longest, been a part of this church the longest, or they've given the most money or whatever, they have the right to lead the church and to control it. I mean, how many churches have been made ineffective at reaching their community because they become so inward-focused? You know, when the church doesn't go in the direction that we want it to, we get upset, we begin fighting. We begin spreading gossip about the pastors or the deacons or, you know, we spread gossip about our brothers or sisters in Christ. When we do this, in other words, we're slowly adding another brick, another more bitumen, more mortar. We're making a monument to ourselves. We're trying to take away glory from God. Harbin's Community Baptist Church exists as the divinely ordained institution that is on a mission to take the Word of God into the world for the glory of God's name. That's why this church exists. And I pray that God's name would continue to be glorified here for many years to come. But we must be careful because those who seek praise and a misplaced security for themselves, like those at Babel, they're against God. And we don't want to be like that. Instead, we want to rest in Christ and make his name famous. Brothers and sisters, there is a much better vision for Christians than our useless and arrogant desires for our names to be known. There's a much better vision for the church of God than our vain attempts to build a tower for the sake of our own names. Of course, we all know that by nature we're born into the same tendencies as the people here in Genesis 11. We're born into the kingdom of this world, right? Yet those of us in this room who have believed in Christ and have therefore been transferred from the kingdom of this world into Christ's kingdom, the question is, is how do we fight such sinfulness? That's part two of the sermon, much briefer. How should we who are in Christ's kingdom respond to the sin of pride and self-exaltation in our own lives? How do we get to a place where we aren't thinking of ourselves more highly than we should be, or we're not even thinking about ourselves less than we should be? We're thinking of ourselves less. How do we get to that point where we're simply not concerned anymore with making a name for ourselves, where the focus is on bringing God glory instead of bringing glory to ourselves? Well, the answer to these questions is to fight hard, 
to rest in Jesus Christ and to work hard to make his name famous. See, we have to embrace the truth that anything we have, whether it's riches or good, well-behaved children or skills or talents or intelligence or whatever it is, that has been given to us by God. And it's not to be used as stones or bricks or mortar, but rather as an opportunity to give praise to God. And on the other hand, God, anything that God has, for whatever reason, chosen to keep from us, we have to see that as God doing so for His own glory and ultimately for our good. We refuse to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to because we know that it's Jesus Christ alone who should be exalted. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8 through 9, we saw it earlier on the screen. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the only name that matters is the name of Jesus Christ. Because no matter how amazing you are, no matter how great of a parent you are, no matter how good you are at your job, how incredible your mind is, none of those things are going to save people apart from Jesus Christ. Or if you're sitting in here and you feel deflated, if you're constantly comparing yourselves to others and finding reasons why you don't measure up, then you too need to realize that God has given you everything that you need for life and for godliness. And anything you have been given is from God. We need to be reminded daily of these truths. It might be a good idea to begin going to lunch with a church member once a week in order to encourage one another in your efforts to turn away from pridefully building a tower for yourself. Maybe you should pick up a book like C.J. Mahaney's Humility and read a chapter a week with your spouse in an effort to remind each other to focus on exalting Christ. Friends, don't underestimate the effects of the sin of pride. God judged the people in Genesis 11 for this sin. Their sin resulted in all the different languages of the world, resulted in mass confusion. Verse 7 again, God says, let us go down and confuse their language so they may not be able to understand one another's speech. I mean, think about all the problems in this world, in the history of the world because of the confusion of languages. How many disagreements, arguments, and wars have come about because of the different languages and cultural barriers that prevent us from understanding one another clearly? Emily and I, we have to learn a language in order to even tell people about Jesus, and all of this is because of the sin of pride at Babel. The languages of the world, God's judgment that he pronounced on the people of Babel because they were concerned about their own glory and not the glory of God. And yet, friends, the God who created the nations in Genesis 11 as a result of their sin 
has had a plan from before the foundations of the world to bring glory to himself, not in spite of the very langu- various languages, but actually through them. See, almost immediately after Genesis 11, God begins his great act of redemption, a plan so all-encompassing that it includes uniting nations. Not uniting them around evil things, but instead uniting them around himself. God begins this reversal in Genesis 12, right after the Babel story. God calls out a man, Abram, who will be the father of a great multitude. And you know what God promises him? He promises to make his name great. And he promises to bless the world through him. Abram is God's act of grace that follows his judgment. God's promise to Abram is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who breaks down the hostility walls that nations have between them. He does this by suffering on a cross of wood and by burying our sins in his body. You know, soon after Jesus completes his earthly ministry, he sends his spirit. You remember Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the spirit comes and immediately begins to reverse the effects of the curse of Babel. People begin hearing the gospel in their own language. And then God's plan of redemption is ultimately culminated in Revelation 7-9, in which a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and people and nation and tongue, they're standing before the throne room of God. They're clothed in white robes and they're crying out, salvation belongs to the Lamb. They're glorifying God. You see, from the nations that are scattered in Genesis 11, God is going to call out a great multitude to honor and praise and glorify His name forever and ever. In Revelation 7-9, we see that the judgment handed down in Genesis 11 is reversed. And guess what? As we wait for that great day, we get to participate in God's work of drawing the different nations and tongues to himself. God allows us to unify, not sinfully as the people at Babel did, but for the right reasons in the forms of local churches, just like Harbin's community. Churches whose mission it is is not to build a tower for their own names, but whose mission it is is to make Christ's name known by preaching the gospel to their communities, upholding the gospel until a full number of God's people comes in. I mean, how wonderful it is for me to hear about the work that you guys are doing in Honduras, the gospel ministry that you guys are doing there. How encouraged that Emily and I are that Harmon's community would participate in the work that we get to do in East Asia by supporting us financially and prayerfully. I mean, these are great examples of how churches can work together in order to make Christ's name famous. In taking your hard-earned money, giving it to Harbin's community, the world doesn't understand that. Why would you give your money to a church? Why not spend it on yourself? The world doesn't understand these things. Taking vacation time to go on mission trips, the world doesn't understand these things. And yet they reveal hearts that aren't seeking praise for oneself but instead for God. Those who seek praise and a misplaced security for themselves are against God. 
Don't do that. Instead, rest in Christ. Make his name famous. Let's join the multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's humble ourselves before the throne of God and proclaim his salvation. See, friends, at the end of the day, the names that we inherit by birth, through marriage, they don't matter nearly as much as the name of Christ and whether we take on his name, whether we take on the name of Christian, and whether we live with the purpose of making his name famous in our communities and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Genesis 11 is not the end of your story. We thank you that the judgment was pronounced on these people and that it had, their sin had far-reaching effects, effects that were greater than they could even understand at that time. Lord, in your grace, you then called Abraham and you promised to make a name for him. You promised to bless the world through him. Or that culminates in your son Jesus Christ coming, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. Lord, may this church, may Harbin's community be a church that continues to exalt Christ, continues to see Jesus' name exalted throughout the world. May we be a people who fight pride. May we be a people who don't care about our own names, but care only about the name of Christ. Where we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.